Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast, the podcast where we bring up-to-date historical research to you in an accessible and digestible way. The History with Jackson podcast is presented by Past and Present Media, the home of accessible history. So hi everyone, welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast and part two of my interview with Andrew Long. In this second part of the interview, we will be discussing the context of the Cold War period, specifically looking at Cold War Germany, the Berlin Wall, uh, the differences between East and West and the different contextual backgrounds the espionage that we have just looked at this is a fascinating second part of the interview i know you guys will enjoy it just as much as you enjoyed the first one so without further ado we're going to have our sponsors first and then our episode now i am a massive history nut hence why i have a podcast hence why i learned so much about history outside of history of jackson and one place that i go to and i really think you should go to as well is to one of the sponsors of this show, which is the Past Podcast with Veronica Fortune. Now, Past is the podcast about those who would never rule, which I think is an amazing concept, you know, learning about these people who we don't often talk about in history. And if you've ever been curious about why women couldn't inherit the throne of France or, you know, why the Hundred Years' War started, then this is the show for you. Veronica covers the almost kings and queens of history and the reasons why they would never rule. And I really think you're going to enjoy the past podcast. And that's past, P-A-S-S-E-D, the past podcast with Veronica Fortune. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Go check it out. Now here at History of Jackson, I absolutely love finding new places to access historical content. And I know that you need some more historical content to look and read. I also know that some of you are writers, you're looking to start your historical content creator journeys. And for me, one of the best places to start this is the historycorner.org or the History Corner blog on Instagram. Now, this is a great hub for creative people to begin their historical content creation journey. And it's a fantastic place for those who are interested in living history or photography to use to begin different methods of collaboration. This is a great place for everyone who's interested in history or involved in history. So that is the historycorner.org or the History Corner blog on Instagram. Go check it out. Right, so I want to build some context around the Cold War period and and what we're looking at. So Germany is is seeming to, to feature quite heavily uh, within this podcast and within the Cold War espionage kind of spheres. So post-war, Germany and Berlin are split into different zones, and each zone is, as you've touched on earlier, controlled by a different power. How were these zones kind of split, and how much interaction did each nation have with the different zones? Because obviously relationships between the Allies are, are vastly different post-war as they were pre-war. I started off, um, actually, my, my whole research, if you like, before I even pitched to publishers, was um, I started to look into the Cold War, and then all all roads seemed to lead to Berlin, and and this uh, and this um, you know sort of made started to make sense, and I started to sort of see patterns forming. Um, 
so as well as the the book for pen and sword on espionage i also write for a publisher called hellion and my mini series that i write for hellion is all about cold war berlin it's cold war berlin an island city that's the series name and i've done three in, the, in that series so far um and the fourth literally tomorrow will be going off to the editor um so yeah berlin cold war berlin uh, and then how that fits in with germany is really at the core of my research and to be honest Berlin was at the core of the Cold War confrontation. Yes, it happened all around the world in different places. It became hotter than, than other places. But yeah, Berlin was, was key. So as we said, after the Second World War, the Germans surrendered, split into um, initially three zones of occupation, the British, American and the Soviets. And then as time goes on, the French get let in and they're given a, a little slice of the British and a little slice of the American zone to, to make it up to four those four three zones became the federal federal republic of germany uh, or west germany in 1949 and in 1955 they got the, it gained full sovereignty so the west germany became a, a, a full sovereign nation the soviet zone became the german democratic republic the gdr or the deutsches demokratische republic if you want to hear my bad pronunciation the ddr and that um, that happened in as a response to the to the um, formation of West Germany that also happened in 1949. Berlin was split in a similar way. So initially three sectors, British, American and the Soviet, and the French were given a chunk of the British sector up in the north of the, the city to basically bring them to the to the table. Um, talk about how relationships break down. Um, pretty much from the moment of surrender, the relationship between the let's we, we now divide into two camps we have the soviets and then we have the west and the west is basically british american french subsequently nato and they're two camps and, and they that really as soon as that surrender is signed those two camps start to form and they get more entrenched over the years um so basically uh the soviets walk out of the four power control of Germany in March 1948, something called the Allied Control Council, and they walk out. So basically you've got these meetings that carried on throughout the whole Cold War, where you had four chairs around a table, the French, the Americans and the British, and the fourth chair was the Soviets, and they never turned up. It was it was as, as bleak as that. And then the very same thing happened with Berlin, the Kommandatura, which was the, the, the body that was supposed to manage Berlin as, as a four power city, the Soviets walked out in, in June 1948 and never to turn up again. But the flags were still flown outside, the four flags. The, the Soviet chair was always there, but never taken up. So the relationship started to break down. Um, in terms of how they operated, obviously, um, the four power status of the city still remained. So therefore, a British soldier in uniform had a right to be inside East Berlin. Similarly, a Soviet soldier in uniform had a right to be in West Berlin. And that, that was the four power relationship. And that was carefully maintained throughout the Cold War for lots of reasons, for liaison, the ability to try and keep a communication, and also for espionage as well. Within the, um, the, the zones, so basically the wider DDR and now West Germany, there was this 
clever arrangement made in 1946 between the British and the Soviets, which gave, on the British side, gave the British the right to send small parties of observers into the Soviet zone, which we know became the DDR, for the purposes of liaison. Now, liaison was never defined, and that suited all parties because it basically allowed the observers to become intelligence collection agents. You know, they were basically allowed by this agreement to travel all around the country. So the observers became part of the British military liaison mission, and that was became known as Brixmis, B-R-I-X-M-I-S. Um, the, so the Soviets had a reciprocal ar arrangement. They could travel all around the, the British zone, and their mission was called Soxmis. Um, and then in 1947, the Americans and the French had similar arrangements. And uh, this, these liaison trips, which became known as tours, carried on collecting intelligence. So the, the shift between liaison, so that's perhaps dealing with um, displaced people, with returning POWs, with defectors, you know, that sort of um, liaison between the two powers, that carried on, but the shift went to intelligence collection and that carried all the way through to 1990 so from 1946 with it where this innovative agreement was set up it basically governed the intelligence collection within the ddr all the way through to 1990 and it's it's fascinating yet again that something is able to to kind of continue in that vein but within a, a very different guise now how important were were these tours then so we touched upon how they're able to gather imp intelligence but you know how important were they and, and how much information were they able to gather from these tours it, just to answer your last point it, it sort of suited both parties to, to to let this happen because this this whole thing called reciprocity you, you know what we do to you you will do to us and and basically um it suited the, the let's say the british to have their people inside East Germany. It suited the Soviets to have their people inside West Germany. They basically um, did all they could. And it was, a, it was a very challenging relationship, but basically, ultimately, they wanted it to stay in place. The East Germans hated it, hated it with a vengeance, and they did all their best to stop it. But the Soviets would, would go because ultimately the Soviets were their masters. Um, and they said, no, no, it's got to continue. So the, the intelligence was hugely valuable. Um, it contributed to NATO and, and British, but NATO's understanding of the Soviet threat. And bear in mind that, that East Germany was a frontline state and so was West Germany, um, it, that they were basically standing off against each other. Um, all the latest Soviet kit was being sent to the front line, so into the, into the DDR, tanks, anti-aircraft, radar, you know, all the latest um, military equipment was there, and these tours, these observers, were able to spot it, photograph it, send it back for analysis. Um, it gave them something called the ground truth. So, you may be picking up through Humint, you may be picking up through SIGINT that something's happening, but unless you've got boots on the ground, unless you've got somebody there who can drive to a particular place 
and observe well this is either happening or this is not happening or it's happening very small or it's happening very big that is hugely valuable intelligence because the soviets became very good at disinformation that they're still good russians are still good at it now they they would spoof the um, the west that something was happening they'd play um recordings of uh radio traffic when actually nothing was happening they'd also sent deploy divisions, huge numbers of military things in total radio silence. So unless you had boots on the ground who could have a look in a field and say, well, actually, this field is empty <laughs> or blimey, this field is packed full of of uh, tanks. So they had to this ground truth was very important. There's another thing called the indicators of indicators of hostility. So there was a checklist on a board back at the military of defense where if things were happening, if they started to, to tick them to go from green to red, it would build up this picture that, that if you had a board that was all red, you're almost close to World War Three. It's that, that sort of indicator. So these guys on the ground were very, very important for informing the, 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 the command structure that this is actually happening. And it's it's, it's like I've said, I've said so many times because it is such a fascinating topic that <laughs> it's they have these checklists and they're able to do so X, Y, and Z and, and things that Russia is doing back in that period and the Cold War, they're still doing today. And it kind of shows that cyclical nature of history yet again. Now, I, I want to kind of zoom us across to, to Berlin. Uh, and, and like we just mentioned, Berlin is is split up like the rest of Germany. What what difficulties come then with with splitting up Berlin, splitting up a city that is deep within East Germany? Well, it, it was a problem for both sides, really. Um, for the East Germans, it was a major problem because basically the East German population were voting with their feet. They didn't like what the society that um, was being built for them in their name, and they were leaving in their droves. And I'm talking about in the hundreds of thousands. It was actually having a dramatic impact on the... Um, East German economy and the ability for them to function as a, na as a nation, if you like. Um, and they had a name for them. They called them Republic Fluchtlinger, basically people who are fleeing the Republic. Um, and they were leaving, as I said, in their droves. You've got a 1400 kilometre border between uh, East Germany and West Germany, and that was pretty porous. And so basically people were just nipping across the border, going to a refugee state uh, centre and saying, hi, I want to come across. And they were welcomed with open arms. Um, in 1952, they uh, the East Germans responded by closing that 1400 kilometre border, and that became the inner German border. Um, but the problem was in Berlin, the sector borders, we talked about the four sectors, were still open. So you could being, live in the north of East Germany, you could travel to Berlin, which was in effect their capital city, and then you could stroll literally from one side of the road to the other, and you'd, you'd cross into the west. Uh, it wasn't as easy as that. You had um, police basically trying to arrest you and stop you doing it, but if you were clever, you could still make that crossing. So they were losing so many people that they managed to um, persuade um, the um, Soviets, Khrushchev in this case, that they had to close the border inside. And that was the reasoning behind the Berlin Wall. So it was 
problematic for the for the East Germans, and they they, they got their way by the building of the this monstrous thing called the Berlin Wall that, in effect, um, surrounded West Berlin, uh, but it also effectively locked in their population. Then for the West, you had the challenge of how do you um, keep this island city going? You know, it's 100 or so miles inside East Germany. They'd been allowed uh, three air corridors, one from the north, one from the middle, one from the south, um, several autobahns and railways and waterways uh, as well. And so but they were designated routes. You couldn't just drive across. You had to follow this particular route. And they were very, very carefully um, controlled. Then in the city, um, you had a this was it was obviously the front line it was it was right at the epicenter um and they built strong garrisons so basically berlin was you could say was indefendable it was very difficult to to handle but they the, the west the french americans and british built strong garrisons and they were very overt in the way they went about their business they they had these lavish parades where they'd drive this all these tanks and armored personnel carriers and jeeps and you know what um, and rows and rows of soldiers through through berlin and that they did them regularly though all of them did it and that was partly to reassure the west berliners that um they were being protected but also to show the soviets hang on a sec we are actually a force to be reckoned with yes you would eventually win us over because you know we are a small a relatively small force you could you know over overrun us within perhaps a week 10 days but by gum we're going to give you a fight and the other way they did it was to have very overt training so there were these various different bases around west berlin where they practice you know firing or throwing hand grenades and you know tanks driving around that they weren't able to use heavy artillery training that all had to be done in in west germany but they could do pretty much else and all the time they were doing it the east germans were up their towers with their binoculars watching what was going on so yeah it was part of this projection of power that, that went on um and that's you know that was how they uh, that they had access and then within the garrison itself they projected that power out it's great that they're kind of able to have those displays to kind of show you know we're we're not here like you said we're we're not here to mess around we're here to uh, kind of make sure that these guys are protected and we can hold on to our territory now across this this period and we've we've touched on it already talking about the the splitting of the powers the West and Russia become further and further apart. And, and as you mentioned, with the building of the Berlin Wall, Berlin essentially becomes an island. Um, and, and that is further shut off as well with those autobahns and those railways being shut off as well. You know, when when does this kind of occur, this shutting off and, and islandification, for want of a better word, of, of Berlin occur? And, and how do the Allies, or what is left of the Allies, work to keep hold of Berlin and keep Berlin going? Well, it all kicked off in 1948. Um, Stalin decided he'd had enough of of these impudent West guys living, you know, living in, in Berlin, right in the middle of his sector. So he decided in a typically blunt way to, that he was going to basically shut off the sector. So he closed the roads, he closed the railways, and I mean literally closed, he ripped the rails up so there was no way a train was going to pass. He blocked off all the canals and so on. 
the only way that you could get in and out of the city was by air. And as I said, there were these three corridors that went um, uh, across, one, one from the north, one in, in the centre, and then one to the south. And basically, there were two million people within West Berlin, um, basically held hostage by this uh, closure, because everything had to be brought into the city. And it was fine when the roads were working, you know, the, there'd be trucks going up and down. A lot was still carried by water in those days. Again, all that could happen, but then they were closed off. So you had this situation where, crikey, these guys are literally going to starve. Um, they, the power had been cut off. There was no coal being delivered. Um, it was, you know, a really grim situation. And, you know, and it's a very brutal uh, macro way of, of trying to sort of uh, get across your point. The West responded in a extraordinary lo logistical effort. Um, when I, in, in my um, first book in the series, I, I sort of look at the airlift it, uh, and well, as well as the general Cold War context, but the scale of the airlift was unbelievable. Um, suffice it to say that um, they managed to feed a city of two million people, feed, clothe, heat, um, and provide a certain level of um, consumer lifestyle, if you like. So newspapers were continued. They managed to feed that, that two million people for almost a year, supplied entirely by air. And basically, they, these aircraft were landing at the peak of the airlift, sometimes landing every minute in in uh, in West Berlin, and there were three airports. There was Gatow in the British sector, Tegel in the French sector, and Tempelhof in the American sector, and they basically had non-stop flights coming in, delivering, as I said, everything from coal to a light bulb. <laughs> you know, it was all stops in between, and that carried on for a year and by the time so this was this was in 1948 it started sort of like 11 12 months later they were so efficient in doing that they could have in theory it was hugely costly but in theory they could have continued indefinitely and um basically stalin realized it came to a realization that crikey the west had responded in a way that i never expected you know this could go on forever i've backed myself into a corner here the west also came together by forming nato that that started around the same time they obviously um brought the three occupation zones together to form the form west germany all of a sudden the west were getting their act together and he was sort of standing out there a bit exposed so one of the other things that the West put a reciprocal blockade on East Germany. Uh, that's not often talked about. Everyone talks about the, the, the other way. But yeah, they put the reciprocal blockade on and that was beginning to hurt because basically Stalin relied on um, information coming from um, not information, resources being pillaged from East Germany back to the Soviet Union and when they weren't coming in because of the blockade, he began to hurt, his people began to hurt, his industry began to grind to a halt. So he had to do this really embarrassing step down. Um, and uh, in effect, the airlift was, he, he just finished, he, he, he lifted the blockade. And that particular chapter was over. Um, the, the West had decisively won. Uh, Stalin had to basically yeah, uh, lick his wounds and move on to the next one. And and for a man who didn't like backing down and, and backing off, 
that must have been an incredibly difficult thing for uh, Stalin. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but then, you know, things then happened. You know, he Stalin detonated his, his atomic bomb in August 1949. He, the, the powers, the, the tectonic plates, if you like, sort of, of the Cold War, then shifted again. And you, you had um, in sort of West Germany, you had this economic miracle that was going on. Um, the, the Marshall Plan was basically kick-starting the economy there. And it was thriving. You know, West Germany in the 50s and 60s was a really happening place. There was a lot going on. Um, the, the standard of living was huge. In the East, it was stagnating. It was grim. Um, the people were firstly voting with their feet. They were trying to escape, trying to get across to the West. But also they were, they really weren't very happy. And there was... Um, uh, stagnation there, there was civil unrest there were riots in berlin in well all over germany actually all over eastern germany in 1953 that was um basically put down by soviet tanks uh lots of people were killed but you know this you could see that, that again the fault lines have shifted and you've got a, a miracle going on an economic miracle going on in the west and in the east it really wasn't working and they they had to make great efforts to try and win the people over you know and it was it was really touch and go for the east german government for a few years until they were able to try and placate the the masses if you like so you, yeah the, the fault lines were definitely the the, the battle lines were being drawn and uh, th that gave us the cold war and it's it's intriguing to see those those differences between east and west and and to see how these these splits and so on were were enforced now i have a final fun question for you Andrew and it's been great to great to speak to you today you know you in your books and you know whenever when everyone gets a copy of this they're going to look at the beginning and and they're going to they're going to see your your glossary of abbreviations mm -hmm. and it is it is quite frankly immense and really quite impressive what is your favorite acronym that you have used and and why I mean when you're dealing with the military um, and particularly with the espionage, you can't get away from these acronyms. They're everywhere. And uh, they, they use it partly to like, keep people confused because it suits them. My favourite one is, is MAUD, M-A-U-D. Um, now, it's not actually an acronym. It was the code name for the British Atomic Bomb Project, and that's before it became Tube Alloys, which is equally obscure. Um, but what I like about it is MAUD, People try, try to understand what Maud was. Uh, all these theories get military application of uranium detonation or something like that. They, they tried to sort of understand it. Actually, the, the um, truth is uh, much more simple. Um, it was a random word chosen from a telegram that was sent by one of the physicists. Maud, Maud Ray, to give the lady her full name, was one of the, his children's governesses. Uh, tutors sort of thing and so he just took the word maud and decided yeah, well let's call let's call the committee maud but for years I had people guessing as to what it actually stood for when actually all it was was a lady's name plucked randomly from a telegram so that's how sometimes these uh these myths are made and it's brilliant to see the way that life can just kind of join in with these you know incredibly dangerous and secretive parts of truth. life the truth yeah. is truth is stranger than fiction they often say yeah now obviously people are going to want to get a uh, copy of your your books so we have secrets of the cold war and we have 
you know, very grateful to Helion as well for sending me the um, two copies, if I don't bash my mic, the first two volumes of your, your mini series. So where can people grab a copy of your books? Yeah, so the, the best way of, of getting hold of the book um, is to go to Pen and Sword's website, and that's pen-and-sword.co.uk, penandsword.co.uk. And those lovely people are giving um, a 30% discount during the month of May this year, 2023. So for the rest of the month, yeah, 30% off RRP is a cracking deal. If, however, you don't moving quick enough and you missed that great offer then if you put the code podcast 20 in you'll get 20 percent off which is again very nice of them to um, do that for us um but yeah it's be great for you guys to pick up a copy and also if you have a look at hellion.co.uk h-e-l-i-o-n um then you can search for andrew long and you'll see my uh three volumes in the in the mini series and hopefully by the summer there'll be a fourth and it you know these are really great books and we've touched on a tiny tiny portion of some of the amazing stories uh within these books so i do really recommend that you guys go away and, uh, and try and get a copy and you know secondly andrew people are going to want to get in touch with you and learn more directly from you where can they find you well, uh, obviously, you can get hold of me via the, the, the publishers I've, we've just mentioned. I've got a website, which is andrewlong.info, um, and I try and keep that up to date with um, information about the books, the latest publications, and there's a sort of mailing list you can subscribe to. Um, and then if you look on Facebooks under Andrew Long Books, uh, you'll find me there and I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter and Instagram, but I never actually find the time to to, to do anything there. But um, yeah, you sort of search around and you'll find some stuff. Awesome. And have you got any, you've just mentioned the third and fourth uh, books within your miniseries. Have you got any more works that are coming out and, and if they're about to come out, how can people get hold of them? Well, so volume four in the Berlin series with Helian, as, as I said, literally tomorrow, I'll be sending that off to my editor. Uh, I've, spent the last few days in a world of editing hell um but i've got through it i've uh, survived the experience um anyway so that that should hopefully be out in the summer as i think i mentioned earlier i'm currently working on a history of bricksmiths which is a great project i mean i'm absolutely loving every minute of it because it's such a fascinating story and i'm working with the bricksmiths association um to to tell the story because you know, the guys are getting older, you know, there they're, are less of them every, every year because, you know, this, this operation obviously ran from 1946 through to 1990. So, you know, time time carries on. But there's some amazing stories of, of oh, crikey, um, adventure, daring do, danger, violence, intrigue. You know, I mean, it's, it's all there. So I'm, I'm loving that. So that should hopefully be out on, with Pen and Sword uh, next year. Oh, fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, hopefully we can have a conversation about that one close to the time when it comes out absolutely well thank you very much for coming on the pod andrew and it's been a pleasure to learn from you thank you for having me i very much enjoyed it